The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Hey, good good morning. So good to have you um, here worshiping with us this morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of First Peter. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter chapter three this morning as we continue through in our summer series through the book of First Peter. If you um, are new, that's near the end of the New Testament. If you're not sure on where that is in the Bible, or there's also um, the passage for today is in the worship guide that you hopefully received when you came this morning. Well, uh, in a few weekends, I think it's three or four weeks away, I get to fly back um, to the Midwest and officiate a wedding for one of our good friends um, that I've known actually since she was in junior high. I was her youth pastor all the way through. And so, so we've known them for a long time. And this last week, I got together over FaceTime with a couple, and it was kind of like the last session. So we've done lots of different premarital counseling sessions. And then this one is kind of the nitty-gritty of the wedding ceremony and all the conversations. And it was just a lot of fun. I'm so excited for them. But then as if you're married like me and you kind of talk about that, or often if you go to a wedding, it's not, I can't help it. I kind of get nostalgic for me thinking back to when I got married. Now, for some of you, that's recent. For some of you, that's ancient history, but that's okay. Um, you know, so we actually, I, I grabbed a picture um, from, when, from when Kristen and I first got married. I know you're thinking, man, Kristen looks the same. What happened to you? That's what I think too when I look at it, right? Like, you know, and then, and then I also think like, man, who are those two kids who got married. We were both in our early 20s when, when we got married. And, you know, we've been married. We celebrated 12 years uh, this, this summer of being married. And, oh, thank you. And for me, when I, when I think about marriage, a few things, you know, come to mind. First off, marriage is an incredible and amazing blessing. It's a blessing from God to have a person in life that you are joined together with, that you've made vows and commitments to, who's there in your highs and your lows. It's, in a, it's a huge blessing, and the way that God has shaped and blessed my life through my wife is amazing, and I'm so grateful for it. But at the same time, marriage is also an incredible challenge, right? It reveals things about yourself that you didn't realize before, right? Suddenly so much is coming to the front and two people living together with different opinions and different thoughts will, will naturally have conflict. And it's an extreme challenge as well at times. But I think also when I think of marriage, it's not just a blessing or a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. That marriage is an opportunity for the love of Jesus to be so on display in our lives that it looks unique to the world that is watching us. And that's what Peter focuses on in our passage today is he shifts his focus to looking at marriage. Now, today we're going to be primarily talking about this. If you're married, this is very easy to apply. If you are hoping to be married or soon be married or engaged, this is easy to apply. For some of you, you're single, that's okay. You still can listen, still listen. And some of even these concepts that we're talking about, we're gonna specifically talk about marriage because that's what Peter's talking about here. But these are certainly, can be applicable to other relationships as well. So even if you're not married, my prayer is that, that God would work and you could get something from him through this sermon this morning. So let's dive in. We're gonna read the whole passage together this morning before, before we walk through it. First Peter chapter three, starting in verse one, it says this. Likewise, 
Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know, I've been studying this passage a lot this past week, especially, and I was chatting with a few of the other pastors here, and I joked to them that, that this passage kind of reminds me of a childhood game that I used to play on my computer in the 90s. Now, if you bought a PC in the 90s, you know it came pre-installed with two games, Solitaire and my personal favorite, this game, Minesweeper. And I joked, hey, man, these seven verses, it's kind of like playing Minesweeper because you feel like if you step wrong, it's going to blow up, right? Like there are phrases in this passage that if you just kind of take them and pull them out, you'd be like, what the world is the Bible saying there, right? What, what is going on? And so my hope is as we walk through this passage, as we're walking through this book, we'll see why Peter writes this, help us see the culture in which he writes, and how ultimately what he's calling them to is still something that applies to us today, 2,000 plus years later. Now remember the context for this, as was for the context last week when Ricky talked about servants and masters, the week before when we talked about submitting to government, the context here that, that Peter sets up is in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which is how we are a good witness as Christians to an unbelieving society. How our lives, the goodness of our lives is such a witness for Jesus in a world that does not believe. And so he looks here and the focus is here is this isn't all the Bible has to say about marriage, but what unique in marriage can be a good witness to an unbelieving world. And in this this morning, we're going to see four ways that the gospel impacts marriage. Four ways the gospel impacts marriage. The first is that the gospel calls us to embody the gospel. This passage calls us to embody or to live out the gospel truths in our own lives and specifically in the marriage relationship that God has placed us in. First, Peter spends most of the time and he first specifically addresses wives. In verse one, he says, likewise, he's connecting this back. In, in the passage before, he talked about submission to masters and before that, submission to government. And so he's, he's tying all of these themes together. Likewise, wives submit or be subject to your husbands. This is a passage, this is a theme that's seen throughout scripture. It's not unique to Peter. Paul also writes of this in the book of Ephesians, this voluntary submission of oneself to someone else. But it's unique here because Peter talks about it and he expands. He says, this submission is for a wife to her husband, not only if he's a believer, but even if he's not. Look at verse one. Be subject to your husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, that's become a believer without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, 
in this cultural setting in which Peter writes, remember, this is a different time, a different culture. In this culture, men, as the husbands, determined the religion of the home. That was one of the responsibilities of men. And so Peter is writing into a context in which it's very likely that there were women who heard of Christianity, who went, heard of Jesus, placed their faith in him, and now find themselves believing in Jesus, yet married to someone who says, no, 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 we don't believe in Jesus. These are our household gods. And he's specifically addressing not only context in which the husband and the wife are believer, but both that which the wife is a believer, but even if the husband is not. So how, how do you live in this? And he's saying, this is why you submit, this is why you live this way. Why? So that they may be won over. See, faithfulness in marriage was seen as a good in their society. He's saying, yes, stay in that relationship that you are already in. Be faithful. Live for Jesus right there where God has placed you and live out the gospel. I mean, imagine if Peter wrote something different. Imagine if Peter was like, wives, if your husbands don't believe in Jesus, just leave them and find someone better. Then what would Christianity in their society be known for? It would be known for it's a religion that breaks and rips apart families. And he says that's not something that would not be for the good of society. This is all talking about this good witness of scripture into society. So he encourages them to stay in their marriage relationships. He's saying there that they will be one. Notice it says one without a word. In their time and in their context, it would actually be culturally looked down upon for a wife to teach her husband something. It was just not how their culture was done. Now, just as Ricky talked about last week when we talked about slaves and masters, the Bible addresses people in a specific setting, in a specific social system. Their primary intention is not to say the positives and negatives, but how to carry out the gospel within the way that we find ourselves. So just as last week when Peter is by no means saying, oh yeah, slavery, that's a good thing. We should keep that. Not his point. Here he's not saying that all of the cultural ways that men and women interact are necessarily good or bad. He's saying that I want you to be wise and how you live out the gospel within the social setting and the context in which you find yourself. He says that they should be one in verse two, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, purity, this purity of the heart or holiness. But the word respectful there, he's, he's not necessarily referring respect to their husbands, but respect, the, the word literally translated is in fear, to live in fear. And in the book of 1 Peter, that word in fear always refers back to a fear of God, a fear of God. So they will be won over when they see your fear of God and how that develops and lives out in your life and the purity of your life because of that. The goal is to win them over. And just as in the passage before, he used an example to help illustrate this with slaves and their masters. He uses, again, an example here in verses five to six, right? This is how the holy women, he's looking back to the Old Testament, this hope they had in God. And then he narrows it in, in verse six, on Sarah. Now, Sarah and Abraham were a model of virtue in, in Jewish thought. They were a looked up to couple. And we don't know, and he's not referring here to a single passage here. He's, he's not referencing a single, a single story necessarily where Sarah does this. And if you were here this earlier this year, remember, we just walked through the life of Abraham and Sarah earlier this year. And if you're like me, you read this, and there was like, yeah, there's times where Sarah submitted to Abraham. I don't really know if she should have, though. 
right? Like remember when Abraham goes into the foreign country and asks her to lie so that they wouldn't find out who she is and she does it not once but twice. And so, so we don't know if that's specifically what, what Peter is mentioning here, but also like just think back to their whole context of their story to begin with. Abraham, where am I to go? To a place that I will show you when you're on the way. And he goes to his wife, Sarah, and he's like, hey, we got to go. And she's like, who told you? And he's like, the God. And he's like, that's not the God we believe in. This is the God we believe in now. Okay, where does he want us to go? He hasn't told us yet. We'll only find out when we're on the way. And Sarah's like, okay, let's do it. That's not a normal, right? That, that, that is a wife who's submitting and honoring her husband, right? That, that, so there's, there's this idea that she is seen as someone who has embodied this, this, this virtue of submission to her husband. Now, in verse six, again, talk about all the different minds you have to step around. Calling him Lord, don't worry, Ladies, this is not a prescriptive thing that you need to go home and I'll call your husband something different when you get home today. All right? I do not make Kristen call me Lord at home. I make her call me Pastor Michael. As she's it's, it, Lord goes back to this idea of voluntary submission. All right? So she submitted herself to Abraham and, and, and likewise, as her children, we are to do so as well. Now, so this, this theme for wives, how the gospel is seen, is voluntarily submitting yourself to your husbands. I want to make sure that we get this, and we'll see this a little bit more clear as we walk through in verse 7. What Peter is not saying here is stay in, wives, stay in your marriages no matter what. He's not saying that. Peter is not condoning abuse. He's not saying if you are in danger, if you are being abused, if you're being hurt, you got to stay because that's what Jesus says. That is not true. And anyone who, hear, anyone who says that is misreading and mis, misrepresenting God's word. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is in the normal setting, if you find yourself as a wife believing in Jesus, even if your husband does or does not believe, you should stay. And your goal is to win him over to Jesus if he doesn't believe because of the gospel living through your lives. He turns his attention at the end to husbands. Verse seven, likewise, husbands. It's not sure here if he's addressing specific to believing or unbelieving, but we can be applied to both with their wives being believing or unbelieving. Live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. In an understanding way, some translations say, um, live with your wives in a considerate way. But I think it actually goes beyond that. Again, the, the translation here literally means, live with your wives according to knowledge. According to knowledge, what does that mean? According to the knowledge of what? Well, so often it's according to the knowledge of, of God and who God is. And just as the wife is called to live in fear, not of her husband, but to live in fear of God, the husband is called to live in knowledge, not just of who his wife is, but live in the knowledge of who God is and how he's changed your relationships and live in light of that as you live out this relationship with your wife. Then he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. There's minds all over this passage right? As the weaker vessel. Now, again, what is he not saying here? By weaker vessel, he is not referring to intelligence or intellectual capability, right? There are a lot of women in this room who are a lot smarter than their husbands. I'm just saying, I know some of you. I'm looking around, all right? Like, I'm just saying. It's true, right? It's not saying that women are not smart and men are not saying that at all. 
It's not talking about emotional strength, that, that women are vulnerable and men are not. It's not saying that at all. It's not talking about some moral quality, that men are morally superior and, and women are weaker. It's not saying that either. It's not talking about spiritual weakness, like men are some spiritual superheroes and women are these poor things that need our help. Not at all. What he is most likely talking about is purely physical strength. Physical strength that men, by nature, this used to not be a controversial thing. It kind of is now, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to defend this because it's kind of obvious if you look too hard. But in general, men are stronger than women. Not always. Certain women are stronger than men, yes. But in general, men are stronger than women. And he urged them, don't use your physical strength in any way to harm or to hurt, but to honor Also, speaking of the wife being weaker than the husband, they lived at the time in a male-dominated society. Men had all of the social standing. So also in that sense, socially, the wife was weaker than the man. And he says, don't use your physical strength or your social standing in any way to harm or to put at disadvantage your wife. Instead, use it actually for her benefit to honor her. It's interesting that, um, that scholars have noticed that a lot of the teaching to wives in verses one to six was common in Greek thought and in Roman literature. Verse seven, you don't see anything like that anywhere. This is unique. How husbands are now called to treat their wives. They would have loved, oh yeah, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wife. I'm, oh, well, that's different. You see, the gospel calls us to embody it in our relationships, whether we're male or female, that the gospel rightfully seen and understood is lived out. It looks perhaps differently, but rightfully understood the gospel impacts and is to be lived out in our marriages. The second way that the gospel is to be seen in marriage is that we need to learn to value the internal over the external. Value the internal over the external. Verses three and four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry of the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so he has this contrast in these two verses, external, internal. External, he focuses in on three things here that would have been common. Now, this is specifically here written towards the wives or to women. I think it can be equally applied, the the concept to both men and women. And he, he narrows in on the braiding of hair, the putting out of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Don't worry, if you have braided hair, if you're wearing gold today and you're dressed nicely, you're not in sin, don't worry. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying in their society... If you wanted to show off, to put up a front to people, this is kind of three of the things that would have been well known to kind of show off, to show something towards others. And he's saying, your value is not in the external that is seen by others, but rather on who you are on the inside. Now, it's so nice that this is not a struggle of anyone today with social media, right? This is something that they had to worry about and we don't. No. Because so much of our lives in the world today is this curated image that we can put forth and how other people perceive us, our families, our kids, our marriages, our spouse, our lives. And they don't see any of the imperfections behind, right? But we put up this external front of, hey, look how great I am. Look how great everything is. And he's saying, your value is not found in that. 
or perhaps it's something different. Perhaps you're like, all right, I don't really care how my hair is done. I don't wear jewelry, whatever. I wear whatever clothes are clean. This doesn't apply to me. Well, maybe those aren't your struggles of the external things you put up. But a lot of us focus on how people perceive us in reference to our status, our position, the power we have, the income level that we have, the friends that we have. And we value these external things and think that this is the measure of who we are. The gospel teaches us to reject that, but instead, in verse four, focus on the internal, this imperishable beauty of, it says, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, again, what is the passage not saying when it talks about a gentle and quiet spirit? It is not saying that women should just be passive bystanders. It's not saying women shouldn't be in high-ranking, powerful positions. And it's not saying that women shouldn't be loud and extroverted if that's how God made you. Gentleness is actually a requirement and something for all. Gentleness and respect. In the Beatitudes, Jesus lists gentleness as one of the signs that we are part of the kingdom of God. This is not a uniquely feminine thing, but all of us are called to gentleness. This quiet spirit refers back to the idea of submission, of humbling oneself voluntarily. And so he's not trying to pick out and saying women are are like this, but no, he's saying what I have just talked about, this inner core, this inner quality of life is what you should be known for. And so whether we are male or female, the challenge is that our value, our worth is found not in this image that we project, whether it's how we dress, what we push out, the status we have, but our worth and value is on the inner side within each and every one of us. See, one of the best things that you can do for your marriage is to develop your own character. One of the best things you can do for your marriage is to develop your own character. And this is why this is so hard. Because it is very easy, very, very easy to find the shortcomings in your spouse. Very easy. You all could list off a really long list right now. I know you can't because I could, right? Like, oh, well, she does this. He does this. I don't like when she does this. He should really change this about himself. It's really easy to notice the shortcomings in the other people. But here's the thing. You can't really change them. Some of you have been trying for a long time and it hasn't worked yet. It's not going to work in the future, right? You cannot change them. It's really easy to focus on the other person's shortcoming, which you can't change. You know, it's a lot harder to focus on your own, but guess what? You actually can change your own shortcomings. You can grow in your own qualities. You can grow in that character. And so sometimes what we need to realize is rather than focusing on the shortcomings of our spouse, I need to look in the mirror and see where I am falling short. I need to focus not on where they can improve, but where I can grow. And when we value the internal versus the external, it allows us to grow and to develop our own character, this, this, which God says is precious in his sight. Number three, the third way the gospel impacts marriage is it's this, you see your spouse as God sees them. It challenges us to see your spouse as God sees them. The second to last phrase in verse seven speaking to husbands about their wives, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. 
This phrase is quite normal for us. It would have been mind-blowing for them back 2,000 years ago. See, who were heirs in their culture? Who got an inheritance? Men. Men were heirs. Women only got an inheritance so long as you were associated or married to a man. That's why it's lots of translations when talking about an inheritance don't translate the phrase children of God, but sons of God, because it wants us to know that you get an inheritance. And it's not saying male or female, but sons, men had an inheritance. And here, Peter is saying, hey, husbands, live with your wives this way. Why? Because they are heirs right with you of the grace that is coming when Jesus comes back. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, Culture may say men are here and women are here, but before God, they're the same. He's saying, husbands, treat your wife how God sees her, not how the world sees her. Treat her as God sees her. See, he's calling on us to treat our spouse like a child of God because that's what they are. This is such a powerful thing and a good reminder for us when we have conflicts in our marriage. That person's not your enemy. They're not this jerk out to get you. They're not some stubborn, hard-headed person. Well, they may be all of that. They are, at the core, a child of God. See, we are heirs together, heirs of what? Of the grace of life. What Peter is saying is this grace that God has shown us, which he just spent basically two chapters in 1 Peter 1 and 2 talking about, this undeserved grace, this hope we have, not of our own, but all because of what Jesus has done for us. This grace that we have, when we realize we've received grace from God, it frees us now to be gracious to others. Get this, grace comes from God. We are all equal men and women, equal before God, equally receiving his grace. And that calls on us then to embody and to live out this grace to other people. Grace is necessary if your marriage is going to look like the gospel. Grace has to be necessary. And you wanna know why? Because your spouse is full of sin. And so are you. That's why grace is necessary, because your spouse is a sinner and you are a sinner. And when two sinners are present, guess what happens? Sin towards each other. So what is necessary? Grace is necessary. Now, I mentioned this a little bit on um, the midweek message, which went out earlier this week. Side note, if you haven't signed up for the midweek message, do so on our website, back into the sermon. Um, I was, uh, I was away a couple weeks ago and I was really challenged that there was a speaker who preached several messages on reconciliation and grace, specifically in relationships and why, why that's such a powerful witness to the gospel and why it's so hard for us sometimes to do. And I was so helped by this thought that he had. He said, one of the, the, the greatest challenges of why it's so hard for us sometimes to repent of sin or to extend grace first to someone else. This is one of the reasons it's so challenging is that we often think of conflict as well, it's, it's 50-50, right? If it's 50-50, then I'll go first. But what happens if the other person wronged me more? Then I need to wait for them. And he said this, sometimes in relationships, conflict is 50-50 at fault. But most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's one did a lot more than the other. One was way more in the wrong. But he said, but realize this, that it's never 0 100 
In every relational conflict you have, you have something in your life that you've done that you need to repent and ask forgiveness and grace for it. It's never zero. You're never perfect and they're never entirely wrong. You always contribute something to it. He said the key of grace is realizing that even if they are responsible for 90% and you for only 10, that you apologize for the 10. You repent of that and you offer grace for the 90 And he's saying, what happens in marriages too often is if we feel like the other has wronged us more, what do we do? We wait for them to do it first. You wronged me more, so therefore, once you go first, then I will. Why aren't you thankful that God didn't have that attitude towards us? That we were zero 100, but God still came and showed his grace. And yes, maybe they were more in the wrong Maybe what they said was more hurtful than what you said, but that doesn't mean you can't lead the way with grace in your relationship. See, grace must be a defining characteristic of a healthy marriage to realize that we have received grace from God. We are co-heirs with God. And because we've received his grace, grace must and should flow freely from our lives. We're so quick to many things, quick to be harsh, quick to argue, quick to judge, What if we were quick to show grace to our spouse? What if we raced to be the first to show grace in any conflict? To race to be there, to strive to be the first, to extend that grace because God has given us grace and he's freed us to see our spouse, not just as a person, but as a child of God. And so we can extend grace to them because we have received grace from God as well. The fourth way that the gospel impacts marriage is this, we realize that our earthly relationships impact our heavenly relationship. Or we realize that our earthly relationships that we have with one another impact our heavenly relationships that we have with God. I love this last line in verse seven. Marriage, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As if the rest of the passage isn't like a minefield, it's like Peter just takes a grenade, launches it in, and then walks away, right? He's like, oh yeah, so your prayers aren't hindered. And you're like, what? Do all this, marriage, so that our, what, what? What is he saying? See, we live in such a hyper-individualized society. different things. And we kind of keep God over here and we do it like this. And so in our minds, it's no problem if we yell at our kids, if we scream at our wives, and then we show up to church and smile and act like it's all fine. I'm sorry if I just called anyone out for your drive this morning. That wasn't my intention. But we live disconnected where we feel like it's fine to be in poor relationships, have relational disconnect with others that we're told to love, but still act like everything's fine between us and God. And God's like, no, 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 no. If you have received me, if we have a relationship, it has to be seen in your relationship, especially with those closest to you in your marriage's relationship. It has to be seen. All of life is connected. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's saying when you come to worship, if you realize you got to reconcile with someone, you need to leave and do it. Otherwise, it's going to hinder your worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, 
which we read a section of it every time that we take communion together, but open your Bible sometime and read what, what, what Paul writes around it. He's talking about, hey, and there are so many divisions among you when you take communion. You not only dishonor God, he literally says, some of you are sick and have died because of it. He's saying, okay, you're taking communion, but there's all these divisions amongst you. That does not honor God. And so that's why Peter writes in there, live this way, embody Right, is to submit ourselves to God's will. Not like, God, I need you to do this, but so that we would submit ourselves to God's will. What's God's will for your life? To look more like Jesus, to grow in holiness. That's God's will. That's what God wants from you. And when I'm mistreating my wife and I pray to God, what God says is, you need to go make things right with your wife first and then come talk to me. Because that's what it looks like to be like Jesus. That's what a holy life looks like. See, our relationship with God must impact our relationship with others. And it doesn't mean we have to be on perfectly good relationship with every single person of our lives in order to have a worshipful relationship with God or prayer. That's not, that's not what Peter is saying. But he's saying, but to think that we can live our lives in an awful relationship with others, particularly in a marriage or with children and with siblings, to think that we can live this way and it doesn't affect our relationship with God, you're crazy. Because it does. Because if we've been reconciled to God, we will live lives of grace and reconciliation to the people around us. So marriage is a blessing, a challenge, and an opportunity for the gospel to be seen in our lives. As I mentioned, Kristen and I were, were quite young when we got married. And I was, um, when I first got hired as a youth pastor, we were dating for a year. And then the second year, we were engaged during that school year and then got married that summer. And it was somewhere right along, I don't remember if we were engaged or newly married, um, that after church one Sunday, I had a parent of one of the teenagers in our youth group. He came up and he said, hey, Michael, can I talk to you? Now you can ask Anthony after church, this could either go really well or this could go really bad, right? You're like, oh, what does he want to talk about, right? Like, what did your kid do now, right? And so, so I go over, and he's like, I just want to thank you. And I'm like, okay, all right, this is going to be a good conversation. And I'm like, all right, what's he going to hit me with? How good my message was at youth group? All, all of, like, I'm, I'm trying to think in my mind, oh, yeah, what good things have I done lately that he's going to compliment me for? And he said, I just want to thank you because your relationship with Kristen has impacted my teenager so much. I was like, what? 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 He's like, he, he grew up in a context of broken relationships. We adopted him later in life. And for him to see, besides his mom and dad, who he thinks are very uncool, for him to see someone else in a relationship, loving, forgiving, honoring each other, he says, that's the most powerful impact you've ever made on my son's life. I was like, not my sermons? Those are great. No. <laughs> but see, now, do Chris and I have a perfect relationship? Of course not. Far from it. But God was able to use something in us to show the love of Jesus to someone else. Do you have a perfect marriage? No, you don't. You won't have the perfect marriage. Can God use your marriage? Can God use your relationship to show the love of Jesus to an unbelieving world? He can because this whole idea of extending grace to someone else, that only happens in Christian marriage. 
Why? Because we extend grace. Why? Because we've received grace from God. And you extending grace to a spouse, loving them, extending grace, loving, extending grace, that doesn't make sense to the world. Like, why would you do that? They haven't earned it. You're like, you're right. Neither have I earned it from God. That's not what grace is. My prayer is that in this world that we live, much like they lived 2,000 years ago, where the world had all sorts of ideas and concepts of what marriage should look like, that those who are Christians stood out, that the gospel was seen in our love for each other, the gospel was seen in that because we have been reconciled to you, because the gospel has so changed our hearts and our lives, that our marriages would be seen as a witness and a testimony to the world. God, I pray over every marriage that's here this morning on the courtyard who are watching online. God, we know that the enemy would love for nothing more than to divide marriages, to divide families. And so we pray your protection over the marriages here. God, would you, by the power of your spirit, enable us in our relationships to be something different to the world, to show the grace of God to our spouse, and because of that, show the grace of God to the world so that they would see and come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.